Well, Sabbath greetings to all our brethren around the world, and welcome to our guests here today. It's a beautiful autumn day here in Charlotte, and the festival season begins Monday evening with the Feast of Trumpets, so it is an exciting and encouraging time. Just in the month of August, we two monster hurricanes, as they were once called, struck the Gulf Coast of the United States. Hurricane Katrina caused at least $200 billion worth of damage and killed hundreds, if not thousands. Then Hurricane Rita threatened Louisiana and Texas. As a result, 2.5 million Texas Texans fled their homes and close to one-half million Louisianans fled their homes. Now, if you were to flee your home on short notice, and remember that Hurricane Hugo affected Charlotte here some years ago, what valuables would you take with you? Perhaps important documents, family photos, or other valuables. Would you be careful enough to take your Bible with you? Is the Bible your number one physical possession? Just how important is the Bible to you? One Bible I had for years, I had written many notes from classes and research. My Bible began to fall apart after so many years. And to me, it was very valuable. So I had it rebound. Now, it cost me $75 to have that Bible rebound, but it still was worth it to me. They did a good job, and I was pleased. How many of you own a Bible? Don't raise your hands. According to the Princeton Research Center, 93% of Americans own a Bible, and 27% own four or more Bibles. How many of you own four or more Bibles? <laughs> Looks like at least uh, almost uh, two-thirds of the congregation. Well, do your children own a Bible if they're old enough to read? My question for you today is, although you may own a Bible, do you read the Bible? Do you even study the Bible? Another Gallup poll released in October 2000 said about six in ten Americans, 59%, say they read the Bible at least on occasion. Readership of the Bible has declined from the 1980s from 73% to 59% today. Now, that's a remarkable decline from 73% to 59%. And the percentage of frequent readers, that is, those who read the Bible at least once a week, that's called frequent, has decreased slightly over the last decade from 40 percent in 1990 to 37% today. That was a Gallup poll released October 20th, 2000. Now, how many, how frequently do those Americans read their Bibles, those that say they read it on occasion? The Gallup poll reports, in terms of frequency of readership, quote, 16% of Americans say they read the Bible every day. Well, that's encouraging. 21% say they read it weekly, 12% say they read the Bible monthly, 10% say less than monthly, and the other 41% say they rarely or never read the Bible. Now, to me, the fact that 16% of Americans say they read the Bible every day is surprising. We were talking at breakfast this morning and about this particular subject, and my wife said, well, when we were about to leave Barbados, where we visited the Brethren in January, she had made an acquaintance with this English lady, and the English lady asked her that, that morning, have you read your Bible this morning? 
And Catherine was able to say, oh, yes. And the lady went on to uh, tell her about what she had read that morning. Now, if someone were to ask you today or any day of the week, have you read your Bible this morning? Could you say, as my wife did so enthusiastically, oh, yes. Would you, would you say, well, I got up late, sorry, didn't have time to read the Bible this morning. Perhaps you read it the night before. So we all have different patterns of reading and praying. But nonetheless, <clears throat> I'd like to take a brief survey, and it's not to embarrass you, but just to encourage all of us. How many of you generally, be honest now, how many of you generally read the Bible every day? Now, you may miss a day or something like that. Well, good, about uh, 82 and a half percent. Uh, very good. Of course, that's just an estimate, but uh, that's very encouraging. And how many of you think you read the Bible at least three times a week? Of course, all of you mostly do. All right. I want to take one more survey and ask how many of you have read the Bible completely, all 39 books of the Old Testament and 22 books of the New Testament? How many of you have done that? It looks like about 50% or 60% of you have done that. So I want to encourage the rest of you who have not done that to read your Bible completely. Now, there are many different patterns and programs of reading through the Bible, and we'll discuss those briefly in a little while. But I want to encourage you all to set a goal to read all the books of the Bible. And perhaps you can do that in one year's time. When we were on the Jerusalem archaeological dig in the summer of 1984, I had a new New King James version of the Bible. And in the back of it, it had a reading program. And so I started to start from that date. It was probably June. Um, I don't know what date it was or July. And I started from that date. It gave a reading from the New Testament and a reading from the Old Testament. And I kept that up. I said, I'm going to read through the Bible. And uh, so I tried to keep up with it. And uh, that one-year reading program, it took me a year and a half to go through the one-year reading program. But nonetheless, at the end of that year and a half, I felt fulfilled, I felt encouraged, I felt rewarded that I knew that I had read through the whole King James Bible. Now, again, it was part, it was part Old Testament, part New Testament. There were different kinds of, of reading programs. But I want to encourage you to do that. How important is it for you to have read the Bible, or at least to know and understand important passages? Let's take a look at what Jesus said in Matthew, the 12th chapter. We'll just run through some of these scriptures rather quickly. Matthew 12 and verse 3. Matthew 12 and verse 3. Remember, the scribes and the Pharisees would challenge Jesus, and uh, they said, uh, your disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day, because they began to pluck ears of corn and to eat. So what did Jesus say in Matthew 12 and verse 3? But he said unto them, Have you not read what David did when he was in hunger, and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God? So again, Jesus expected the leadership that were challenging him to know the Scriptures. And then in verse 5, again he said, Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? So Jesus expected them to 
have read the Scriptures. Matthew 19 and verse 4. I'm just showing you several examples of how Jesus answered these uh, critics. Matthew 19 and verse 4. In this case, the Pharisees challenged Jesus, saying, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, verse 4, Matthew 19, Have you not read that which he made them at the beginning, made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall twain, they twain shall be one flesh. So again, <clears throat> Jesus told them, they should have read and understood. Matthew 21, verse 16. So I said, we'll go through these rather quickly. And here again, the children were crying out as Jesus came in the triumphal entry to Jerusalem, as it's called. And they were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. And the chief priests and scribes were sore displeased, it says in the King James Version. And they said unto him, Hear you what these say? And Jesus said unto them, verse 16, Matthew 21, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings you have perfected praise? Again, you look in the marginal reference, and I have a little number S here. It says Psalm 8 and verse 2. So you can check back into the Scriptures. Matthew 21 and verse 42. And Jesus said unto them, <clears throat> After he had given the parable of the householder, Jesus said unto them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same as become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So he's asking it in a question, and uh, that is from, as I give the marginal reference here, but Psalm 118, I believe. Near the end of Psalm 118, I was reading it in the Moffat translation, and Moffat tried to put it into verse, if I can recall. The stone the builder set aside has become the building strength and pride. So Moffat uh, tries to put it in verse. I tried to memorize that. I, I didn't memorize it for this purpose. I'm just uh, glad I was able to remember it. Matthew 22, verse 31. <clears throat> Again, um, he was talking about the uh, resurrection. The Sadducees, which said there was no resurrection, thought they really had Jesus. And the question saying, well, who's going to be uh, the uh, husband of this wife or vice versa uh, in the resurrection? And Jesus said, verse 31, but it's touching the resurrection of the dead. Have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then one final one we'll take a look at here, Matthew 24, 15. And we've read this in terms of the prophetic framework and what is to happen. And, of course, uh, this is a very key prophetic milestone that Jesus pointed out to us, Matthew 24 and verse 15. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, then in my Bible it has in parentheses, and probably in yours, whoso reads, let him understand. Then Jesus went on to talk about fleeing into the mountains. 
Now, of course, as I brought out in my commentary on the web concerning the uh, fleeing refugees from Rita, uh, that those three million refugees know what it's like to flee. And Jesus said, yes, in the future, God's people are going to have to flee. But he said, this is something you need to understand. He that reads, let him understand. Now, if we're not reading, how can we understand? So Christ expected the religious leaders of his day to have read the scriptures. But Christ has not only called us to be leaders, but to be kings and priests. So we need to know the scriptures. It is the revelation of the creator to his creation. It is the instruction book from the maker to his children. Mr. Armstrong in his autobiography, Volume 1, wrote the section called Facing the Tobacco Question. He wanted to know whether from the Bible it was wrong or right to smoke cigarettes, as he was doing. Facing the Tobacco Question, Herbert W. Armstrong, Autobiography, Volume 1. Quote, Then immediately I was baptized. The matter of smoking had to be settled. Of course, the Quaker church in which I had been reared as a boy taught that smoking was a sin. But I had been unhappily disillusioned to see that in so many basic points the Bible teaching is the very opposite of what I I had absorbed in Sunday school. I've got to see the answer to the tobacco question in the Bible, I said to myself. Until I found the answer in the Bible, I decided I would continue as before, smoking mildly. I had continued to smoke lightly, averaging three or four cigarettes a day or one cigar a day. I had never been a heavy smoker. Now I had to face the question, is smoking a sin? I wanted the Bible answer, for I had learned by this time that Christ had said we must live by every word of God. Then he goes on to say, the Bible is our instruction book on right living. And we in God's church over the past decades have called the Bible our instruction book. It's our instruction manual. And we must find, he goes on to say, we must find a Bible reason for everything we do. Now we heard in the sermonette about surrendering and submitting. So let me just ask you, have you surrendered and submitted to the Bible? Too many people today just think of it as a source of inspiration or encouragement rather than the law of God, the word of God, and the instructions of God. Mr. Armstrong goes on to say, Now I began to apply the principle of God's law. I asked myself, why do I smoke? To please others? To help others? To serve or minister to or express love towards others? Is that why I smoke? or only to satisfy and gratify a desire of the flesh within my own self? The answer was instantaneously obvious. I had to be honest with it. My only reason for smoking was lust of the flesh, and lust of the flesh, according to the Bible, is sin. I stopped smoking immediately. This beginning of overcoming was not too difficult, for it had not been a big habit with me. Once weaned, I was able to see it as it is, a dirty, filthy habit, and today we know it is a serious and major contributing cause of lung cancer. So is the Bible really God's instruction book? Is it God's instruction manual? Well, you know these scriptures by heart, but we need to emphasize it in this particular sermon. So let's go back to Matthew 4, 
the fourth chapter. And here is one of the greatest battles, if not the greatest battle, uh, recorded in the Bible, the battle between Satan and Jesus. The tempter came to him, Matthew 4, and verse 3, after Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And the tempter came to him, verse 3 of Matthew 4. He said, If you be the Son of God, I would appeal to anyone's vanity, if you are, you think you're something, command that these stones be made bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now Luke 4.4 4 says virtually the same thing. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. That was the answer that Jesus gave Satan the devil. And certainly it is one of the fundamental keystone truths upon which we base our beliefs and our practices. Now I know that you know that it's from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, but let's go back there and see it again so we can just reinforce the topic of the day, which is our submission, our obedience, our acceptance of, and our willingness to read and internalize God's instruction manual. Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8. And again, the Israelites were probably really tiring of this what's-it that they were eating, although it says it was like coriander seed and honey, so it must have had a good taste, but even something with a good taste that you eat day after day after day can get pretty tiring. And so he goes on to say in verse 3, well, let's start back in verse 1, Deuteronomy 8, All the commandments which I command you this day shall you observe to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Eternal swore unto your fathers. And you shall remember all the way which the Eternal your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Now, Deuteronomy is Deuteros Nomos, that is the second law. He's repeating and summarizing as they're about to cross the Jordan River. And he's summarizing what uh, God had commanded them and taught them those 40 years. You shall remember all the way which the Eternal your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to prove you, to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or no. And so every once in a while we have in the church of God, we have upsets, we have divisions, we have um, disruptions as we call them. And we say, oh, this never should have happened. Well, yes, it never should have happened. But God allows it. Why? So He can know what is in your heart, to know what is in my heart. So God allows disruptions of various kinds and trials and tests to know what is in our heart. And he humbled you, verse 3, and permitted you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you knew not, neither did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone or only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the eternal does man live. And that is our commitment. I hope that every one of us has committed ourselves to that, but we need to think about that and deeply appreciate our commitment to that principle. Mr. Armstrong said, I wanted the Bible answer, for I had learned by this time that Christ had said we must live by every word of God. The Bible is our instruction book on right living. 
We must find a Bible reason for everything we do. The Bible is our instruction book. The Bible is our instruction manual. And the title of the sermon is simply, Read the Manual. Now, for some of our brethren, they are visually impaired, and so they cannot visually read. But there are several organizations that provide free audio materials for the blind and the physically handicapped. The Library of Congress has a division called the National Library Service, NLS, and that's for the blind and physically handicapped. It's 1291 Taylor Street, Northwest, Washington, D.C., 20542. The phone number is 800, area code 424 One of my aunts was uh, legally blind. We got to visit her up in Massachusetts uh, just before uh, Pentecost this year, and she died just a month ago. But she was legally blind. Uh, she was not a member of God's church, but she was able to access free audio tapes, and uh, one of her favorite areas of interest was romantic novels. And she would get these audio tapes free. Uh, I believe it was from the NLS, I'm not sure, but some uh, uh, service for the blind. Now, if you also, there are also other organizations. One is Bibles for the Blind and Visually Handicapped, and that's in Terre Haute, Indiana. Uh, the uh, email address is braille, B-R-A-I-L-L-E, at indiana.net. Now, this organization produces the Bible and evangelical tracts in braille and distributes free to those with financial need or at cost for those who can afford it. Or uh, the website is http colon forward slash forward slash braille.indiana.net forward slash braille forward slash. So you can uh, replay this tape to get that address uh, carefully. But we do want to make those uh, materials available, and we have our own reading system uh, here. We have volunteers who come to read the literature of uh, the Living Church of God and make it available for those who are visually handicapped. Now, we talk about the Bible as being an instruction book. It just seems that On occasion, we get uh, inquiries from employees and ministers and others saying, well, what am I supposed to do? What form am I supposed to fill out? Do you mean I have to fill out those forms? And it's just amazing that you'd think, well, maybe our employee didn't read the employee handbook. So we do have an employee handbook, and I did ask our employees at a staff meeting one time, how many of you have read the employee handbook, and I was surprised most of the hands went up. So if you want to be a success in an organization, you need to know the procedures and policies of the company, the corporation, or the organization for which you work. We have another manual that our legal affairs and risk department put together called Living Church of God Volunteer Program Manual. So we even have a manual for volunteers. You can be a better success in life if you follow instructions. Now, we men, we we know we don't need to follow instructions. We know that when we get a new uh, piece of equipment or a toy for our children, we can put it together without reading the instructions, don't we? Well, when all else fails, follow instructions, 
is the axiom. But the better axiom is read the instructions before you fail and read the instructions to be a success. We sang our first hymn today, Psalm 1. And it says in that psalm that David talks about, I meditate on your law day and night. And that whatsoever he does shall what? Shall succeed, shall prosper. So we have an instruction book from God. We also have a pastoral manual for our ministers that uh, gives policies and procedures. Christians are supposed to be excellent workers, employees, and servants. Let's turn to Ephesians 6. Mr. Davis read in the sermonette from the section of Ephesians 6 about masters. I'm going to read the section about servants. Ephesians 6 and verse 6. I'll start with verse 5, sorry. Ephesians 6, verse 5. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Now you say, wait a minute, my supervisor, my manager is carnal. Well, that doesn't make any difference in terms of your responsibility. Because this is your instruction from your master. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, you want to be the best employee, the best servant you can be. With goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. I've told you the story before about my washing automobiles when I was a freshman in Ambassador College. I was a transportation engineer before I came to Ambassador as a freshman, so my first job was washing automobiles. So... I think they want to put my skills in the right uh, place. And uh, I, I was really slacking off one day, and, and uh, the uh, manager uh, came by. His name was Bill Evans, not uh, our Bill Evans in this area. And uh, so I saw well, out of the corner of my eye, oh, my manager's coming. I started to work, you know, very diligently. I was washing Mr. Armstrong's car, and I caught myself, and I thought, wait a minute. You know, whose automobile is this? It belongs to Jesus Christ, and you work for Christ. And from that time on, I did not have to have someone watching me in order to motivate me to do my job more diligently. Why? Because Christ is my boss. He goes on to say, with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord, verse 7, and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man does, the same shall receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. So again, we must be diligent as servants and follow the instructions and try to be profitable servants. Colossians, the third chapter, is a parallel to this. Just quickly look at uh, Colossians 3, verse 22. The Apostle Paul repeated these themes and these instructions often. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh not with eye service as men pleasers, just so you want to get ahead for vanity's sake, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. We need to always have that awe and that reverence for who and what God is, that He is the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent through His Spirit, Psalm 139, the Creator, the Almighty, El Shaddai, the Almighty. And so... He goes on to say, Whatsoever you do, verse 23, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of inheritance, 
for you serve the Lord Christ. This is our instruction book. And it gives us instructions on how to be profitable servants to our employers and to the corporations for whom we work. Let's turn to Luke 17, verse 10. Luke 17, verse 10. And I often, every once in a while, think of this and realize, well, look, am I doing my duty? Well, yes, maybe I'm doing my duty. But in God's eyes, is doing your duty enough? Or should you be doing more than your duty? Luke 17 and verse 10. So likewise you, when you shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. And sometimes we can just feel smug and content. Well, we've done our job. Now we can just relax. But in a spiritual sense, God wants you to go above and beyond what you think is your limited duty. I've told you uh, before, I think, uh, the story of Benjamin Franklin. You know, he asked in the morning, what good thing shall I do? In the evening, he asked, what good thing did I do in respect? The Sabbath is a wonderful time to help, to serve, to do other things. You might uh, recall the sermon on Rejoice in God's Sabbath. It's in our tape library. You can write letters. You can send emails. You can uh, do good works, uh, give gifts to uh, other people, to think, think about others on the Sabbath. Are you a profitable servant? Are you going above and beyond, or are you just doing your duty? One of the ways, of course, to be profitable is to know the policies and procedures of your employer or your company. And in my experience of uh, having worked for 50 years or more, and some of you have worked longer than that, I found that reading and understanding the employee manual was very valuable. But I hope, brethren, that we understand that God's instruction manual, His instruction book, is priceless. And do we deeply appreciate that revelation? What is the Bible? It is the Word of God in print. Let's turn to John, the first chapter. Jesus was the Logos, the Word made flesh. John, the first chapter, in verse 14. John 1 and verse 14. I have a cup of, sip of tea here. John 1, 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It was the Word, the Logos, that was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then back to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, of course, that Word was made flesh, as we saw in verse 14. So the Bible is the written Word of God, as we call it, but I wonder how much we appreciate our Bibles. Some of us, about 60% of us in this room, have four or more Bibles, was my estimate from your handing, raising your hands. But do we realize that the Bible was not available to the masses of people until around the 15th and 16th centuries, and even then it was somewhat limited? In the 14th century, John Wycliffe was uh, an Oxford theologian who translated the Bible into English. And between 1380 and 1390, 
hundreds of English translations of the Bible were produced under his direction. And more than 250 manuscripts of the Wycliffe Bible still exist to this day, and more than any other work of medieval English literature that has survived. The Wycliffe Bible was so popular that the King of England and the Roman Catholic Church undertook, because it was written in English, a drastic campaign to suppress it. And in 1401, 17 years after Wycliffe's death, England's King Henry IV passed a law forbidding the ownership of the Bible in English. Now, supposing you lived in a state, a dictatorship, in which Bibles were not allowed. You know, it's kind of shocking when you think, if you did not have a Bible available, or if ownership of the Bible was deemed illegal. Now, many countries, Mr. Partian can tell you about uh, some of the countries in which he's uh, traveled and, of course, what it's like in uh, Europe, the popularity of the Bible. Uh, Mr. Partian and his French programs would refer to the Bible over Radio Luxembourg. And some of these French people and others in Europe would say, what is this book you mentioned called the Bible? They didn't even know about the Bible. So we must understand that here Wycliffe was one of the pioneers who translated the Bible into English. In 1415, the Roman Catholic Church declared Wycliffe a heretic and ordered that his books be burned and his remains exhumed. The decree was carried out 12 years later at the command of Pope Martin V, who had Wycliffe's body dug up from the grave and burned and his ashes cast into the River Swift. That's near Lutterworth, where Wycliffe died. So there are two names you need to know. Here was a man who translated the Bible into English and his body taken up out of the grave, burned, and ashes thrown into the river. John Wycliffe. And, of course, later on, uh, John Johann Gutenberg printed the first mass-produced uh, mass Bible in 1455. It was 1,282 pages long, and about 180 copies were printed on Gutenberg's press. It was an edition of the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible. And then William Tyndale. So there are two names I want you to remember, and that is John Wycliffe and William Tyndale, as they were very significant. There are others, of course, contributed, but they were significant contributors of translating the Bible into English and making available what we have in essence today. The New Testament under William Tyndale was printed and distributed, but the Catholic Church would confiscate and burn any copies that they could find. Now, why would you think that the Bible, now made available to the common people in their own language, would be a threat? Tyndale fled England, but over the next 10 years, Bibles were smuggled back into England in bales of cotton and other means. So, but Tyndale was finally captured, and then in 1536 he was strangled and burned at the stake. Tyndale's last words were, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. So there are men and others uh, who have died for you and for me, in essence, that is, in, in contributing and sacrificing their lives and making available and making possible the English translation of the Bible. 
Tyndale had printed uh, many other translations and copies of various uh, books of the Bible, but his translations were banned, and he was burned at the stake, as I mentioned. So interestingly, the 54 translators of the King James Bible, which was published in 1611, relied heavily on Tyndale's translations, and some estimate that 90% of the King James versions of those books consist basically of Tyndale's translations. So I hope you appreciate those two individuals as well as others as William Tyndale and, of course, our other friend, <laughs> uh, which I've seen a video on, John Wycliffe. I think you find it helpful um, at Christian bookstores. Sometimes there are videos, and the one I saw on John Wycliffe's life uh, was very helpful, very, very interesting and informative. So I would recommend that if you have a chance to see that. Well, let's turn to 2 Timothy 3, and you know that scripture by heart as well. 2 Timothy, the third chapter. I hope that you know and know that you know that the Bible is the most important book in the world. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The NIV says, all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, I just wonder how, how many teenagers respect the Bible. A Gallup poll in March of this year, 2005, on teen stance on the Word of God, Protestant Catholic teens disagree about Bible's origin. According to the most recent Gallup Youth Survey, teenagers express views about the Bible that are similar to those of adults. 39% of teens say that the Bible is, quote, the actual Word of God, end of quote, and should be taken literally. 46% of teens say the Bible is the inspired Word of God, but not everything should be taken literally. And 14% of teens say the Bible is an ancient book of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. And similarly, uh, the adults, 34% of the adults say it's the actual Word of God, 48% say it's inspired, and 15% of adults say by the Bible is an ancient book of fables and legends. So what do you believe about the Bible? And some of our young people... And, of course, this tape is going out, video sermon, going out to our brethren around the world. And I'll ask our brethren around the world, our teens around the world, have you yet proved that the Bible is, as 39% of these teens believe, that the Bible is the actual Word of God? Now, there's quite a difference in Catholics and Protestant teens. They hold alike that the Bible is the Word of God, only 3% of Protestant teens and 6% of Catholic youth believe the Bible is a book of fables and legends. But there are wide differences between the two groups. 55% of Protestant teens believe the Bible is the actual Word of God compared with only 24% of the Catholic youth. So I hope that our brethren and our teenagers are reading the Bible, and I know that at the Living Youth Camp there certainly is, was a strong 
evidence and strong uh, reflection of their interest in the Bible. I think I mentioned before how uh, one of our ministers driving some of the five teen girls from the airport to the camp, uh, their whole discussion on the way to camp was about the Bible and about events and uh, issues relating to the church and the Bible, which was very, very encouraging. Now, what do teenagers read today? There is a Bible study that we have here 15 minutes after services for our youth, so we're very thankful for that. But the number one book, of course, that most of you would realize is the J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series. Is once again affirmed as a cultural phenomenon mentioned by 10% of teens, almost three times as many as any other book or series. That is the number one series of books that U.S. teens read. The fourth, the, the Bible was number five after the Da Vinci Code. And I just wonder how many of our brethren really think that the Harry Potter series is beneficial for young people to read. Well, yes, uh, millions of little children are reading, and they think, oh, this is a wonderful phenomenon. These books have inspired little children to read. But what are they reading, and what are they learning? This book is called Fantasy and Your Family by Richard Abanis or Baines, and uh, he comments on a closer look at the Lord of the Rings, uh, Harry Potter, and magic in the modern world. Uh, this was uh, recommended to me by Scott and Dinah Winnale. And they have children, and so they're concerned about what their children are going to be reading. This is on page 141, and it is uh, a website. I won't even mention it. Uh, it's a Harry Potter fan who is, uh, has a keyword, and he is involved in, he or she, involved in magic and witchcraft. And this is what this individual posted on his or her website. Quote, yes, J.K. Rowling has done her homework. Her hidden references are so numerous and her knowledge so deep that I'm certain she has done much research on the subject of real sorcery. Many of her characters are named after famous occultists of the past. Many of her fantastic spells actually exist and her magical creatures are straight out of ancient mythology. She is writing about the same witchcraft that I study at home, far away from Hogwarts. And so this individual is uh, studying it and uh, recognizes that what uh, are in those books are the same kind of witchcraft that he or she is individually studying. Continuing with the quote, I recognize much of J.K. Rowling's work from Middle Age grimoires I've read. These charms and spells are more than just mere fantasy. They have a historical basis. I will be more than happy to share it with you here on my website. Now, he mentioned grimoires, and uh, go back to page 136, and what are grimoires? On one occasion, for example, Rowling was asked uh, if, well, I won't get into that part, uh, the powers of witchcraft, magic, shamism, and whatever one likes to call it are latent in everyone, is, is one of her beliefs. Um, grimoires which take many forms, are books containing instructions on divination, spiritism, and magic, M-A-G-I-C-K. This includes both published volumes and private journals. So I won't go into more of it, but uh, they are books of witchcraft, in other words, and how to uh, practice uh, witchcraft. 
So I hope our brethren are a little sharper than uh, others in the world who think this is innocent and will have no harm on people. It certainly goes terribly against the instructions of God concerning uh, seances, concerning uh, occultism in uh, the book of the law. And we brought that out in our telecasts. In fact, uh, we have a tape available, uh, The Dangers of Occult. Um, I believe that's the title of our, our tape. Now, let's turn to Second Peter, the first chapter. I hope, brethren, that we are educating our own children to the truth. And, of course, parents are very well aware of Deuteronomy 4, verses 9 and 10, about teaching the Word of God, the truth, the law of God to their children when they are standing up, when they're sitting down, when they walk in the way. That's something we need to be teaching our children continually. That's Deuteronomy 4, verses 9 and 10. But Second Peter, the first chapter, again, by way of review of what or how the Bible is described, Second Peter 1 and uh, verse 15. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. There's a very strong hint, if you will, if not even uh, more clear that the Apostle Peter was preserving the Scriptures, even having a way to preserve the Scriptures after his death. So he continues in verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, Mr. O'Gwin brings out in his uh, Bible study course that who, the, who were the we that were eyewitnesses of the majesty. We go back to Matthew 17, and it was who? James, Peter, and John. And James, of course, uh, we did a Bible study here recently. John was the last living apostle who wrote the last book of the Bible, uh, the book of Revelation. And so those three men, by inference, we infer that they were preservers and organizers of the Bible. The Apostle Paul, of course, was uh, instrumental in preserving the Bible. He wrote and said, please have, I forget who it was, Titus, uh, bring the books and the parchments to me when uh, Paul was in prison. So there were those accumulation of epistles that Paul had written. The Apostle Peter, of course, was commenting on Paul's scriptures. I think we had uh, comment on that uh, the other day. Uh, where the Apostle Peter said that Paul had written things hard to be understood, which those who are unlearned rest as they do the rest of the Scriptures. That's Second Peter 3 and verse 15. Now, how were the Scriptures preserved? They were inspired, as we said, saw here in Second Peter 1 and uh, verse... Well, we haven't read that part yet. Uh, verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, Second Peter 1.19, whereunto you may do well that you take heed as unto a light that shines into a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation or origin, as it has in the New King James margin. For the prophecy came not at any time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke 
as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So that's how God inspired the Bible. Now, were there, how was it preserved? Who was responsible for preserving the Bible? Let's go back to uh, Romans, the third chapter, Romans 3. The Old Testament was written in Hebrews, in Hebrew. And so he says here in verse 1 of Romans 3, What advantage then has the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God, that is, the pronouncements of God. They were responsible for preserving the pronouncements, the word of God, the prophets' writings, and that which came down through history. The scribes, of course, as you can read any book on the origin of the Bible, the history of the Bible, the scribes were meticulous in their copying of the manuscripts. And they would even take a bath before writing the Tetragrammaton, which you all know what the Tetragrammaton is. That's the four-letter YHVH, which is translated the eternal in the Moffat translation or in the King James Version in modern translations, is translated Lord, all in small cap letters with a capitalization. Whenever you see L-O-R-D in large capital letters, that is indicating that it is the Tetragrammaton that is in the Old Testament we're talking about right now, the Y-H-V-H. And the scribes, before they would copy that, would take a bath before they would even copy those four letters in the, in the script. So it was a very meticulous procedure. And Moff, of course, as uh, our Bibles have it now, and as the Jews pronounce it, they will not pronounce it. So they take every time the Tetragrammaton appears, they pronounce it Adonai, meaning Lord. And that's why it's Lord in our Bibles. So were there mistakes in uh, translation? Uh, yes, there were. We'll go to, uh, at this point in time, uh, Mr. Pyle, if we could go ahead and uh, have the ushers uh, pass out the handout I have for everyone. But uh, we'll turn to 1 John 5 and verse 7 right now. 1 John 5 and uh, verse 7. Here, yes, there were mistakes in translation. And we can have uh, one of these per adult, I believe. I think we have enough... Uh, 1 John 5 and verse 7. For there are three that bear record. This is what I have in the King James Version. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. Well, that is not a correct translation. I want you to mark in your Bible so you, you understand, in fact, some of you have a New King James Version, and in the New King James Version has a marginal note that lets you know what elements have been added, what words have been added, and should not be in there. In fact, uh, it should read as follows, starting with verse uh, 7. For there are three that bear record. Now, after that, you need to put a bracket where it says, in heaven, from in heaven on down to verse 8, where the sentence says, and there are three that bear witness in earth. At the end of in earth, put another bracket. And so in other words, the words 
at the end of verse 7, at the beginning of verse 8, are added words and should not be in there because this was a Trinitarian insert. And so what it really should read is as follows. For there are three that bear record. Then you drop down to verse 8. The Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. That is what the correct rendering and reading of 1 John 5, verse 7 and 8 should be. Now remember, just because there are three, that doesn't mean that it's wrong. God said in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. But this was an addition that is not in the original uh, text. And so, I, yes, there have been uh, mistakes in the translation and additions. But what do we believe about the Bible? Well, let me just read this one note in the New King James Version. It says, The NU text and the M text omit the words from in heaven, verse 7, through on earth, verse 8. Only four or five very late manuscripts contain these words in Greek. So the King James marginal note brings out that that addition, there are only four or five late manuscripts that had that. So what do we believe about the Scriptures? We believe that the Scriptures are God-breathed in their original writings. And to teach that the Bible is not inspired by God rejects the Bible itself. So this is what we can say about the Bible and what we believe. Our statement, uh, official statement of fundamental beliefs, which you should all have a copy, uh, under the Holy Bible says the following, The Bible is the inspired revelation from God to mankind. It is the true basis of all church doctrine, Matthew 4.4, 4, 2 Timothy 3.16. We believe the Bible is inerrant in its original manuscripts and is the authoritative foundation for all true knowledge, John 17.17. 17. That's our official statement of fundamental beliefs. And others have said something very similar. Harold Linzel wrote a book called The Battle for the Bible. I quoted from it on the telecast. And uh, Mr. Meredith has the book. It's a 1976 book called The Battle for the Bible. He writes, quote, Inspiration may de be defined as the inward work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and minds of chosen men who then wrote the Scriptures so that God got written what He wanted. <laughs> I like the way he says that. Uh, for a scholar to say that uh, so that God got written what he wanted. The Bible in all of its parts constitutes the written word of God to man. This word is free from all error in its original autographs. It is wholly trustworthy in matters of history and doctrine. End of quote. That's from page 30, uh, The Battle of the Bible by Dr. Harold Linzel. Mr. Armstrong said it this way, although not as formally, more informally, in his Mystery of the Ages uh, book, page 25, under Eating Crow. Uh, he said, of course, he was talking about his wife and her teaching and how he uh, disputed her teachings and he had to eat crow. He had to admit that she was right after all. I had been bent on proving to my satisfaction that, quote, all these churches can't be wrong, for their teachings came from the Bible. The essential point here is the simple fact that I did find irrefutable proof of the divine inspiration 
and supreme authority of the Holy Bible, parentheses, as originally written, as the revealed Word of God. Even all the so-called contradictions evaporated upon unbiased studies. And he goes on to say about all these churches couldn't be wrong. Where did their teachings come from? He says, the amazing, unbelievable truth is that the source of these popular teachings and practices of professing Christianity was quite largely paganism and human reasoning and custom, not the Bible. And so you will see, brethren, around November or December, you'll be receiving a new booklet just recently completed by Mr. Meredith titled Satan's Counterfeit Christianity. That will be the semi-annual offer to all subscribers of Tomorrow's World magazine. And he does quite a bit of research and documentation to show that many of the practices and teachings in so-called Christianity today did originate from paganism. Now, how is the Bible valuable to you? I uh, ask you another embarrassing question. Uh, This is the latest Tomorrow's World magazine, and there's an article entitled, How the Bible Can Help You, and it gives five benefits of the Bible. Uh, Have any of you read that? Wonderful. Good. All uh, 11.5% of you. Thank you. That's uh, very encouraging. I hope the rest of you do, too. But let me just refresh. This is important. This is what what we are reading the Bible for. These are the benefits of the Bible. I'm just going to list them uh, to you. Number one benefit, and this is in the magazine, so you don't need to necessarily write these down as notes if you want to uh, go back to the magazine. Number one benefit, the Bible reveals the way to life beyond death. And we didn't read verse 14 and 15 of 2 Timothy 3, but you know that... uh, Paul was writing to Timothy, and he said that, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from a childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, from a child, from the childhood. And I hope that our children are learning the Holy Scriptures. Paul goes on to say, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. That's 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. So the Old Testament scriptures are what? Able to make you wise through for salvation, uh, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. You had to add the faith of Christ, but the scriptures still were able to make you wise for salvation. And again, shows us the way to life beyond death. Benefit two, the Bible explains life's real meaning and purpose. There are so many songs, that at least there were uh, one song back, what was it, the 60s or 70s, kind of a plaintive uh, melody, is that all there is, you know? Uh, you, you know, is, is that all there is to life? What is life about? Christ came that we might have life and have it abundantly, and we know what the purpose is. David asked the question, what is man that you're mindful of him? and the Son of Man that you care for Him or visit Him. That's Psalm 8 and verse 4. So we know God's purpose. God's purpose is what? For human beings. One way of saying it, He is reproducing Himself. But we are made in God's image to be born into His royal, immortal family at the resurrection 
to become kings and priests and judges in the kingdom of God. That's one way of stating it. So the Bible shows us the very purpose and meaning of life. Benefit three, the Bible shows the way to harmonious relationships and how many of us have difficulty getting along with others. How many of us have conflicts with a boss, a spouse, or family members, or friends? Can the Bible help us to get along better with others? Jesus taught, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We've had plenty of sermons on having the attitude of a servant, teaching us servant leadership. Philippians 2 tells us, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem or value others better than themselves. Number four is the Bible teaches us how to find true success and fulfillment and happiness. And uh, I have here a comment in it. Uh, for more on this topic, see The Real Abundant Life on page four of this issue. That's Mr. Meredith's uh, lead article, The Real Abundant Life. So. I hope you've all read that. And then benefit five, the Bible reveals the future. And this is something that few people on earth know, except those in God's true church. And, well, there are others who understand a certain amount of prophecy, but they have various significant elements of the framework in error. Today, Charlotte Observer said, High holy days, they are the days of awe, a period of prayer and reflection that begins at sundown Monday with Rosh Hashanah and continues through Yom Kippur. So how do we know about that? Again, the Bible gives us an outline of the future, and the holy days give us a reinforcement of that outline. And we'll be keeping the Feast of Trumpets Monday night, and one of the key scriptures for that is what? Revelation eleven fifteen, the seventh trumpet. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And that's something we are all looking forward to. When we look around the world and see all the devastation, the despair, the oppression, the evil, the wickedness, the rottenness, we want God's kingdom to come. And so these are some of the benefits of the Bible. There are many other benefits too, and I'll just mention one that was not in the article, and that is the promises of God. We had a telecast on that here just back in uh, May or June, I believe it was. The promises of God, and that's Second Peter 1, verse 2 and verse 3. By these, let me just read. Let's turn there, brethren. I think it's important to uh, turn there. See, so see, we have about another hour and 15 minutes to go. Second Peter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, according as His divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that has called us to glory and virtue. People want things today. It's a materialistic world. Yet God says He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I hope that we are thankful and appreciative. Verse 4, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, 
that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And God's divine nature is joy, love, peace. And I hope that we can all reflect and radiate that kind of characteristic. Now, there are many kinds of uh, reading programs. I want to come back to that particular point. And I'll just mention, after these benefits of the Bible, uh, the matter of reading uh, some of the programs that are listed. I just went on the Internet this morning and put in Bible reading programs, and you'll come up with all kinds of programs. One is, and they'll give you the dates, and they'll give you the scriptures to read. Uh, one is from beginning to end, which, of course, you, some of us have done. Uh, other is the Old and New Testament together, which I described, I personally did back in 1984. A New Testament scripture and an Old Testament scripture in a scheduled reading program for a full year. There's a chronological um, way of reading. In fact, I just bought a Bible recently that's called the, chronolog the Chronological Bible that is based on the history of when those books were written. And then, of course, there is the inspired order. Now, you have a handout. I'd like you to take a look. Those of you who have the handout, uh, Mr. Amon has put this together. It's a very uh, helpful and effective handout. It's called R102, a reprint, number 102, God's Word and the 21st Century. And for those of you who are not here in the congregation but elsewhere in the world, seeing this sermon video, I would encourage you again to write for this reprint. Now, let's turn back to uh, the back page, inside back page, as keys to understanding the Bible. We have charting the Bible. Now, we've discussed this in our Bible study on James about the inspired order of the Bible, so some of you are not there for that Bible study, but Remember that the Old Testament is uh, the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And that is the inspired order. So that is one way of reading through the Bible, is the inspired order. That's a system that you might choose to read as you read through the Bible. Uh, the Law, the first five books of, called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, then the Prophets section, there are six in that, and then the writings, 11 of the writings. And you notice that in the Jewish organization or the Hebrew scriptures organize uh, the uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are combined together and Chronicles are combined together. The same way with Joshua and Judges and the prophets and Samuel Kings, four books are counted as one. And so in the inspired order, you have 22 books in the Old Testament, and then, of course, the 27 in the New Testament, making it a total of 49, 7 times 7. Then you have the New Testament uh, organization with uh, Paul's epistles following the general epistles. So you may want to choose to read the Bible in that order. Now, I want to encourage you to read through this because it does give you a, a background on the origin of the Old Testament, the preservation of the text, how did we get the Old Testament by Mr. O'Gwyn, page 7? How did we get the New Testament, page 11, again by Mr. O'Gwyn? And uh, let me show you something here on page 14, just in summary. And we don't know all of the exact specific historic events and how it took place. We know 
that James, Peter, and John were very instrumental in organizing the scriptures, particularly Peter and John. Now, on the last paragraph, sorry, the last column, uh, notice, let's read through that, Christ ensured the church that he established would not be left a human tradition or vague, unreliable recollection as its source of guidance. He left us with a written record of his message and of the actions and teachings of his apostles. This message was accurately preserved in the manuscripts copied in the Greek world for centuries. After the fall of Constantinople to the Turks in 1453, Greek scholars fled to Western Europe, particularly Switzerland, bringing a treasure trove of ancient manuscripts. These manuscripts provided the basis of what is called the Textus Receptus, from which both the King James and New King James versions were translated. The living Christ has guided and orchestrated events to ensure a faithful witness of the good news that he came preaching almost 2,000 years ago. Our New Testament is truly the legacy of the early church faithfully preserved for us today. Now, again, there are many other books that give you more of the details about the preservations, uh, preservation and the various texts. One uh, particular research that was done in Ambassador showed that the Byzantine family of text is uh, more reliable. And where there may be errors in the text, it's, that is, in comparison to some of the other texts, those, it's 95.5% was one analysis. Uh, all agree, that is, all the text agree. And the minor variations only, agree, uh, only varied in words such as the definite article, the, or instead of Lord, it had the word Christ. But in those variants among the thousands of, of uh, manuscripts, none of those variants changed the basic doctrines of the church. So God has preserved the word faithfully for us. The men and women have gone through suffering to bring it to us. Now, I want to just mention, I'm not closing yet, I'm just looking here. I uh, just want to mention that as we approach the feast, I want to encourage you, um, for those of you who uh, have children of uh, age, that uh, you might want to use some of your festival time to buy a Bible for your child. I know when I got my first Bible, I don't remember how old I was, whether I was seven or eight years old, and I really treasured that. That was my Bible, and I, I really appreciated it. So I hope that you can do that. There are many uh, other Bible aids that you might think about uh, purchasing at this time. I, uh, I think I kidded in our Bible study of, about James that uh, some of you men could buy your wife a, a software program for your computer on the Bible. But there are some of those things that you can do. This is, again, lesson one of uh, the Bible study course, and it does give recommendations for Bible study aids, uh, Bible concordances, Bible atlases, dictionaries, and commentaries. So, again, uh, as you uh, approach the feast, you might be thinking of adding to your collection of Bible study aids, and I hope that will be helpful to you. In the article, there are various kinds of Bibles, of course. There are many, many uh, dozens of translations of the Bible. Uh, one of them that is brought out in here is the Aussie Bible uh, that uh, came out in uh, Australia, and uh, <clears throat> it uh, takes the Aussie vernacular and uh, tries to... Uh, make it popular for uh, the audience. There's another Bible that has just come out, 
and uh, is now becoming rather popular. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. It is called uh, the 100-Minute Bible, Christianity in a Nutshell, Britain's 100-Minute Bible. Uh, it may, and this is uh, from ABC News, it may be the Word of God, but that hasn't spared it from regular man-made tinkering. From 15th century printers to 20th century modernists, every age has sought to adapt the Bible. So now, for the era of restless consumers and fickle attention spans, a British publication distills the original into a form you can read at one sitting. Instead of 780,000 words and 1,200 chapters, there are just 20,000 words and fewer than 60 pages. Not surprisingly, the 100-minute Bible is generating robust debate in Britain, where even Shakespeare is no longer immune to a culture of abbreviation. Proponents say it is a gateway to the classic, a crash course in Christianity that will provide a useful tool to reach out to the curious, the lapsed, and the ignorant. Now, I don't think you would want uh, this particular uh, book. Um, they think it's going to be helpful to Britons because publisher Len Budd says that he is struck by how little the average Briton knows about the Christian culture that has underpinned society for centuries. Barely 10% of the 40-odd million Britons who cite their faith as Christian regularly attend church. I think Dr. Winnell has brought that out in some of his sermons before. Of those who do, he says, many will have but a hazy sense of biblical chronology. So there are many helpful Bible study aids, but I presume that the 100-minute Bible will not be one of them. So... <clears throat> I would encourage you along the lines of Bible resources that we have in our tape library, sermon tape library, you might write these down. Mr. Davy Crockett gave a sermon here a little while back, number 313, Miracle of the Bible. It was a very helpful sermon. Uh, Mr. Sid Hull gave a, a sermon we have in our tape library, number 304, Study God's Word. And then Mr. Meredith gave one, 10 Keys to Bible Study, that's number 239. Now, we, uh, of course, have many booklets and resources that uh, I hope that you will take advantage of. How many of you have read all 24 booklets from, uh, that we've put out? Okay, we've got, look at that, I'm amazed. That's wonderful. About 9.4% uh, of... Uh, congregation have written all, read all four, 24 booklets. That's very encouraging. Now, we do get requests for uh, some of these booklets. One is called The Beast of Revolution, and uh, Mrs. Uh, Lori Lyons put this together. The Bees of Revelation, The Beat of Revelation, 14 Signs of the Anniversary of Christ's Return, um, Holly Days, H-O-L-L-Y, the Middle East in Processing, and Revelation, the Mystery Not Unveiled, but Revelation, the Mystery Revealed. And then 12 Keys to Not Answered Prayer, but 12 Keys to Unanswered Prayer. So we do uh, have people who really are interested in the truth, but get a few little words wrong. Well, there are many proofs of the Bible. We don't have time to get into that. Uh, but I'll just mention there's fulfilled prophecy, there's answered prayer, there's historical accuracy, there's scientific accuracy, 
We brought those out in articles before in the Tomorrow's World magazine. Preservation of the text is another proof of the Bible. Living by the Bible is a practical way of life. It explains the mysteries of life, who we are, what we are. It's one of the benefits of the Bible. So there are various proofs of the Bible. It is the most important book in the world. It explains the very purpose of life. It gives us knowledge and it gives us understanding. And as we read that manual, we must also live by every word of God because it is truth. President Abraham Lincoln uh, respected the Bible. Abraham Lincoln said, quote, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. And then our first president of the United States, George Washington, said, It is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. So, brethren, we've been given this wonderful gift. We've been, God gives us all kinds of wonderful gifts. Let's take a look at one final scripture, Psalm 119. Turn to Psalm 119. The great American statesman Daniel Webster, and I quoted this in a telecast that will be aired in the middle of January on the lessons of history. Psalm 119, verse 105, Psalm 119, 105. But the great American statesman Daniel Webster gave this warning about our national future. Quote, If there is anything in my thoughts or style to commend, the credit is due to my parents for instilling in me an early love of the Scriptures. If we abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering and to prosper. But if we and our posterity neglect its instructions and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury all our glory in profound obscurity. And we have been experiencing catastrophes. So that is quite a warning. We individually have the opportunity to internalize the truth and the Word of God. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So, brethren, may God's Word light your pathway for the rest of your life. Let's read the manual. Let's study the Bible. And let's rejoice as we live by its instructions.